Howdy. Hello, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. That's very nice. I think I see a little bit of you and Bradley. How's your singing voice? Uh, should we, maybe later we can get to that okay. if we have time. All right, yep. Yep, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Okay, so uh, so this is really exciting. Um, let's go, I think the way, how many people here know a little bit about Ev's bio? He just told everybody. Oh, so. shit, because that's the first half <laughs> of this. Maybe you weren't listening. But, uh, well, that was a, a small bit. So I think we'll, we'll start from the beginning, and then we'll start to ask some questions more All deeply, right. and then we'll get to the main event, which is everyone's here's questions. Um, so let's just go right to the start. You grew up in Clarks, Nebraska. That's correct. What was it like growing up there? Uh, it was very quiet, it was very, except for the tractors. Um, very lonely. Clarks is a town of um, approximately 400-ish people when I grew up there. I lived outside of that. I really wished I lived in town where all the people were. I lived, I lived on the farm. Uh, you, you worked on irrigation. I worked on irrigation. I worked in cornfields. Um, that was my upbringing. But it was fantastic in the sense of um, I was very bored, and um, I think boredom is a very useful thing to be when to have when you're a kid. And I wasn't, you know, really watched over that much, and there was lots of things to build. So I spent most of my time just running around trying to build things, tree houses or cars out of spare tractor parts or skateboards and things like that. So I, I look at it as like you gotta, gotta make your own fun. Uh, and so that's mostly what I did there. Okay, and it became a theme for you throughout your life. Yeah. So what did most of the kids that you grew up with end up doing? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Unf but um, I don't know how many Nebraskans you know. Do you know a lot of Nebraskans? One. Okay. So um, a lot of them are still there. Well, A, there's not a lot of Nebraskans. B, most of them stay there. Um, are there any Nebraskans in the room? Are there? No, zero. So it's like Cornhuskers? Uh, Cornhuskers, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, they're probably doing different stuff for the most part, but, um, you know, you see them run into them now and then. They're always very friendly people, I find, um, much like Canadians. There's a connection between Canadians and Nebraskans that I've never understood. There's probably Canadians in the room. Um, there you go. So. All right, so we've got our Canada shout-out in. That's great. Um, so you're 25 years old, and you moved to Sonoma. Correct. Um, so I was into computers, I was into the internet, this was 1997, the internet was, wait, 97? Yeah, um, the internet was an early thing, I was trying to start an internet company in Nebraska, um, in like 94, and... Wait, what was it? Have we... What was the company? Yeah. Well, when things are new, you can just say, I'm just having, like, it was, you can be more general, so uh, it was an internet company. Okay, okay, but what did it, what did it do? All the things. We've already blown um, up our agenda for tonight. By we the way. we so were just fun, uh, right? well, the internet. There was like nothing but but just wide open space on the internet. So we had a lot of ideas. Unfortunately, we didn't really know how to write software. Um, so we ended up doing mostly web development, and hosting, and that was boring. And I was bad at sales and service. So um, we went out of business. Uh, but I had a lot of ideas. So it was it was. It, it was a, my first lesson in running a company, having never worked at a company, um, which is generally a bad idea. Um, but that's why, getting back to California, I was like, well, I really need to be in California. Um, and so I was looking for a job, because at that point, um, I'd lost a lot of my father's money on the company. And um, so he didn't really want to fund anything else. So I looked for a job, and on one of those job boards, I found a job at O'Reilly and Associates, as it was called at the time, the book publisher who was doing internet stuff very early, and Tim O'Reilly, of course, who was a pioneer and very influential, ran that company. And it happened to be in Sebastopol, which is in Sonoma County, about an hour north of San Francisco. But from Nebraska, that looks like Silicon Valley. It's just a couple degrees off on the trajectory. Um, and so, it ended up, it's a, another small town, um, substantially bigger than Clark's, but very kind of a sleepy farm town in Sonoma. But it was a good entry point to the Bay Area. Great. And I'd like to get to the bold face names, but before we do, what was evhead.com? 
Evhead, what is evhead.com? It's, it's still a, a question. Thing. Yeah. Um, I re recently relaunched my blog on Medium, evhead.com. Check it out. It's like 700 followers. Um, Can't you do something about that? I, I just got to earn it. Um, so <laughs> I'm trying right now. Go to Medium near you. Um, so Evhead was. It was actually my first blog, I guess. Um, I had, it was it was a personal homepage before blogs were a thing, and uh, I got the name. I was thinking of domains. You remember back when you could register a domain by just sending an email to Network Solutions and formatting it the right way, and then you you owned that domain. So out of all the domains that that were available in uh, the late '90s, I got evhead.com because good choice. Thanks. Um, I like it, but there was. I was thinking, what what should I call my website? Um, and I ran into this guy who worked on the farm, literally a guy named Jim, and he said Evhead. I'm like, oh, it's good. And I went and registered the domain. And, and it works so well that you're like, everyone should do this. Yeah, exactly. It was a couple years later as I I turned Evhead. Evhead was the impetus for Blogger because I was writing things, and then you know formatting the HTML and then. FTPing it to the FTP server and then linking it. I was like, there should be software for this. So I wrote a script that allowed me to hit a button and type something in a box and hit publish, and then it was on the on the web page. And that was like a huge moment that I still remember because I thought, wow, that changes everything. I can just have a thought and put it on the internet in a matter of moments. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And in retrospect. <laughs> Um, but that I really remember that that moment, which led to Blogger. But it was very, you know, it was like other things um, I was involved with, and and um, yeah, that was that. So um, people say that you came up with the term blog, but here at BetaWorks, we are in pursuit of the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there's a so I think Ben said I came up with the term blogger. I get credit for blog, which is fine, but it's not true. Um, but in 99 is when we started Blogger. There was this emerging thing on, on the web called weblogs. Um, and, uh, and then the, uh, the story I know is there a uh, guy named Peter Merholtz put on his weblog, hey, we should call them WeBlog, um, which didn't really take off the wee blog idea or the blog idea. But then I was trying to think of a name for blogger. I was like, I'm going to make a tool to make weblogs. What should I call it? Let's chop off the web. It wasn't that I thought we should call weblogs blogs necessarily, but blogger seemed like a cool name to call a web blog thing. So we made so I registered blogger.com, which was available. And, um, and we called the product blogger. And then blogger became the generic noun. So that's the complicated story. My blogger was with a capital B. It was the name of a product. Still there on the web, blogger.com. Interesting. Uh, Not that interesting. No, I'm, we can I'm engaged. On. Yeah, this is good. Uh, so you, I mean, you also called, it's funny, like blog, blogger. You used to call twittering. Twittering? Twittering. We did call it twittering. For it took us a while, a while in the company to come around to tweet. I just watched your TED talk where you're calling it twittering. And I'm like, what's really? this guy saying? Don't watch that TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was weird, right? So, like, Twitter and Tweet are some of, like, the best accidental branding of all time. And we were just like, ah, Tweet sounds too cute. I, I remember us having that thought. Also, I don't know if this is still true in the URLs, but they were called statuses in the URL. The, the object wasn't called a tweet in the code. It was called a status. Um, and actually, yeah. So, but it works now. We all understand. And, and speaking of people that shouldn't uh, start a company without having worked in one, how much attention did you pay to Mark Zuckerberg at that time? Oh, none. Um, well, we were old. We, um, we meaning, I mean, I was the oldest, but among, like, Biz is slightly younger, and Noah, and then Jack is slightly younger, but... But we weren't in college, and we had heard rumblings about Facebook, and but we couldn't check it out. So, all right, Facebook sounds like a dumb college thing. Um, so yeah, no, we weren't paying attention. At the time, you were right. 
<laughs> well, I guess. Okay. So I, I skipped ahead. So, okay, you have this, this very successful blogging platform called Blogger. You sell it to Google. You last like a year at Google, less? Year what and happened? eight months. Year and ten months. What happened over uh, there? Well, they went public. That was helpful. Um, <laughs> um, I was just, I was very angsty. I actually regret leaving Google as quickly as I did. What a phenomenal place to be, early Google, um, just in terms of like what a ride and what so many smart people and interesting culture. And I was just a little bit too um, unpolished to survive in what was even a very non-corporate, bigger company. Um, and so I was just like a scrappy entrepreneur that all I wanted to do was make my thing successful and I didn't know how to get along with other people to do that. Uh, so I was like, fuck this. And, um, but I still credit Google. Like I learned a tremendous amount in my short time there and made valuable connections and um, really was happy and proud to be a Googler as we all were at that time. Um, and very fortunate that they bought my company and they, they didn't fuck it up. I, so like how many times, it was the first company they ever bought that had people and we were six people. And so we get there and it was February 2003 and all of Google is about 800 people, which seemed big, but, but they're just like, it was chaos and they had no time for us. And I was like, all right, what's the plan? And they didn't have a plan. They're just like, well, thought what you're doing was cool, so you could come do it here. I'm like, great. Okay, so I should just do this thing. Can I have some engineers? I'm like, no, you can't have engineers. They're gonna go work on search and advertising, which is a really big deal. I'm like, fair. Okay, so can I hire my own engineers? I'm like, no, we're very strict about what engineers work at Google. I'm like, all right. So. I felt a little hamstrung, but but that was also because I didn't know how to play that game. And um, anyway, it ended up working right because they, I mean, blue, blogger, blogger, killed um, over you the last. You get to make the names. It on this it, one. it it grew, <laughs> it grew a ton while it was there, and it was um, uh, eventually I was like, okay, it's going to be fine without me. I'm going to go do something else. Okay, um, but but Google right now. It's funny because it's like the exact opposite. They just have too many engineers and they just kind of hang out and eat. <laughs> no comment. Good work if you can get it. Yeah. All right. So, so then you meet um, Franco and Seth Rogen. <laughs> Some, yeah. Um, Biz, Biz worked for me. I hired Biz at Google to work on Blogger. I knew, knew him from the internet. Um, I flew him to, to San Francisco. He was scared of flying at the time. Um, from Boston, and and uh, I was like, "Come work here," and he said, "Okay." And then, um, and then after I left, it was was um, recruited him to what was Odeo, which then we became Twitter. But we don't have to go into that whole details because people have questions. That's right. That's that's <laughs> the reason why. How are things charge. between the three of you guys now? Good. Biz and Jack and I. Yeah. Um, and Noah, don't forget Noah. He's got to be in the. Who's he? And Noah, of course. No, Noah knows him. Um, Who do you think he, he's going to get played by? Uh, he, he might be more the Seth Rogen, although that's, yeah. It's very telling. Um, Biz, and, and Biz and Jack and I get along great. I mean, they work together every day, so I don't see them as often, uh, especially Seth. I stepped off the board almost a year ago, um, so I, I saw... Them, I, I, and I have lunch with Jack, or not Jack, with Biz about once a month. He's on my board at Medium, um, so we're close. We do a lot of, we always invest in each other's things, and um, so we're close. We've been working together for a gazillion years. We'll keep doing that. Um, Jack, I see less often since I got off the board, but we get along well. Yeah, we have to. Well, we'll just do. We just did Twitter, so we'll do Medium, and then we'll get to audience <laughs> questions. So okay, so you did this like really cool. You did blogging, then you did really short form. Twittering, we call it. Twittering, right? And then you say, let's go back to blogging. What happened there? Well, if we zoom way out in the, 
the thing that was exciting about the internet in in the early days to me was people could share knowledge and ideas and that that feeling of i had a thought and i put it on the internet or i can find someone else's uh story or idea or knowledge that to me was just um a fascinating thing and so and we learned a lot in the 20 years we've been doing that or and um or 15 year old years or so when i started medium but I looked at that and was like, okay, we had we had some stuff right and some stuff wrong when we did blogging. We learned this big thing with Twitter that uh, kind of everybody learned at once, which is it's really about the network. And the network is where the power is, and the network's where the distribution is, and there's so much value in the network. We didn't build a network for Blogger. And I thought, well, social media is cool. There's lots of purposes that serves, but it doesn't serve everything. It doesn't serve... Um, deeper storytelling, it doesn't serve more complex narratives, it doesn't serve um, the type of stuff that, that you people are still linking to constantly on Twitter and everywhere else, which is articles that explain things. But that didn't have a network. So what if there's a network for that stuff? That was the, that was the very simple idea, and it's kind of just c putting the two together um, and uh, sort of a chocolate peanut butter situation was the idea. And I st and for the purposes that was sort of the the very the opportunity I saw, and then the need I saw is that if you could do that and actually get a network to critical mass, you could help good ideas get get wider exposure and bad ideas get less exposure, which doesn't seem to be happening at the web on the web at large. That seems to be something broken about the feedback systems there. So. There's a need to build better feedback systems and an opportunity to create a network for more substantive content. Content, And it wasn't just like, it wasn't Twitter's the wrong idea. It was like Twitter serves these use cases we didn't even know we had really well, but it doesn't do this other stuff. And I have like a thousand more questions, but I'll just ask one more, then we'll get to audience questions. Why do you keep starting companies? Are you, are you tired of doing this? Or is that, what, what's inside of you that makes you want to keep, do, keep doing companies? Um, well, I haven't started one for a few years, just to be clear. Um, I did start a, a venture fund about five or six years ago um, called Obvious Ventures, which is that and Medium, the only companies I've started in the last decade. Um, so don't plan to start a lot more. I do enjoy working because I enjoy um, working on interesting things. I enjoy being creative. I see business as really, it's, it's a creative outlet. and. Um, I love working with other people on ideas and pushing ideas forward and um, both with the venture firm and with Medium is enabling other people to spawn ideas and pursue interesting ideas. And so that makes it extra interesting and there's important things to do in the world. And so um, if, if I can feel like we're, we're contributing something and solving interesting ideas and being creative and I mean, what else are you gonna do with your time? Yeah, and it's cool. I mean, most of your career has been, well, nearly all of it has been creating platforms for others, which is maybe we'll get into. It's a big problem. We're still, there are it's a good 20 year problem. We're going to, I think, another decade or so is, is warranted. If we get it under control in 10 years, that will be sweet. So, yeah. all right, let's go to the audience questions. We're cool with that. Great. Number one. Okay, I'll just read them and then we'll, you can answer them and we'll go from there. I recently read Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is a CEO's candid advice on difficult topics for startups, like how to fire friends, et cetera. Do you have any similar hard thing you can share? From Grant, Grant Kimmerling. Oh, it's starting out with an easy one, aren't we? Um, that is a great book, by the way, if you're not familiar, Ben, ben Horowitz, um, who I'm lucky to have on my board at Medium. Um, I mean, he. What's fascinating about the book is, um, no, I'm thinking of his new book. That's his old book. Um, he. So, it's funny because a lot of my lessons probably come from Ben. I mean, the hardest thing we did at Medium was we did a layoff of about a third of the company in in um, right exactly three years ago, four years ago, um, beginning in January 2017, and that was incredibly hard. And. Um, when I look at that now, um, I think it was the right thing to do. Um, it was more difficult than I expected, 
in terms of the reverberations. And the, w the way I looked at it was, um, it was a preemptive layoff. It wasn't like, we're running out of money, we gotta cut costs and hope we, we save this thing. It was, we, we are not on the right track in terms of the, the business that we're building and um, we're spending a lot of money. And so we need to get to this new business, which ended up being the subscription business we're doing now. And that's gonna require some runway that, and, and not all the same set of people. And so we had diagnosed the problem, myself and the executive team, over a few months, and then we decided on a solution. And um, so it was like a preemptive surgery. We are like, we need to do this. It's going to be painful, but it's going to make us healthier in the long run. The patient being the, the company was sort of like had a lot of shock from the surgery, and partially because we had the very, you know, um, a pretty tight culture, and so I mean, we definitely weren't, weren't like a mercenary culture where people were super hardcore. It was a very tight community, um, which makes something like that much harder. And um, and when you solve a problem like that, and there's like as leadership teams, like okay, phew, we solved the problem. We feel better as soon as you do it because you you fix it. But the patient just had like was cut open and and wasn't like focused on where we need to solve this problem. And of course, some people knew that that we needed to fix some things. But but so so it took a lot longer because it was a shock to many people, and that caused. Um, and Ben gave me this advice at the time. It's like the number one thing you do when you do a layoff if you've destroyed trust, you've destroyed confidence and leadership, and you have to you have to earn that back, and on top of that, I was saying, um, for those who were staying, like, we just did this thing, and we're, our new bet, people are super skeptical of. And, and so, at the time, early 2017, we're saying, we're gonna do subscriptions, we're gonna make, have consumers pay for articles, and everyone thought we were batshit crazy. Yeah, I mean, you, you wrote this post saying, I don't really believe in web advertising, and people yeah. are like, he's just figuring this out now? Well, some people said that, and everyone else said, well, that's the only thing that works. I mean, the and media people are like, okay. I wrote a post that said, like, why, why it causes detrimental effects on the quality of content. And that, but, but what I think was, like, my favorite headline at the time was, Ev Williams has lost his goddamn mind. I didn't write that one. Thank you. Okay. Um, but I actually have that pin taped on my door in, in, my, in my office in San Francisco. Um, I waited a couple years so people in the company wouldn't read that and think, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> but um, that, so, so the combination of we did a layoff, that was painful, and we're doing this thing that people on the outside are saying is crazy and that industry doesn't really believe in was really hard to carry, carry that, that faith and get, get through that. It took a long time to build confidence back internally. I didn't say the solution. I don't know if I answered the question, but it was hard. That was good, yeah. Yeah, and you, you sort of timed the, the reader support movement perfectly. <clears throat> right when you made that shift, people started to pay for news and content they liked, as opposed to expect all of it to be free. And all these publishers totally. started yeah. to put up paywalls, and it seems to be working out it's, OK. It's working well, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go to the next question. What advice would you give to young tech entrepreneurs starting their journey? Staring their journey. Staring their, <laughs> staring their journey. Let's uh, go with starting and then we can do all the other variations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, there's so much. It's hard to, hard to, um, <laughs> focus. Um, I, th I think th there's a couple things I've been thinking about a ton lately that are, um, I've always thought, but I, I think is especially true in the, the tech industry feels like it's gotten um, more about optimization and less about creativity over the last couple decades that I've been involved. And that's natural, that's the maturation of an industry but um, I think there's a lot of problems that come with that. And 
Um, as I mentioned before, I see business as a creative uh, process. And even if you're developing enterprise software, that come in, inherently you're creating something that didn't exist before. And I think the best products come from that desire, that, that ability to see something that should exist in the world and, and just having a desire to make it happen. And the worst products come from analysis and um, saying like, okay, like we're, we're going to intellectualize ourselves. In fact, Odeo, the company that didn't work on my list, basically came from like, Biz and I were having a conversation. We thought we invented podcasting, but other people were already talking about it. And then there was all this hype around podcasting, and I thought, well, that's kind of like blogging. I bet I could succeed at that. And sort of like, it wasn't like, I really need to do this thing in the world. And so I, I just think as much as you should be data informed and research and talk to customers and all that, I, f I, I think that's often overdone. And that desire to create something and follow the intuition, the creative instinct to go where you need to go, even if there's not positive feedback either in, in numbers or validation from other people. The most interesting things are on the other side of that positive, like they're on the other side of the negative feedback you're getting. And so um, it's that. Yeah, and I promise not to plug my book too much, but it is really about creating a culture of invention versus refinement. And so it's one thing to talk a big game about being creative, but what inside of Medium have you put into place to make it possible for people, not just you, but your employees underneath yeah. you to invent? Uh, I think we've done some stuff well on that and some stuff we're, we're still working on. Uh, I think in the early days of Medium, we had a very inventive space. And I think what happens also along the journey is this question is about just starting out. There's different phase, There's actually a phase when this gets harder. Because most people just starting out, there's nothing constraining you or restricting you. Or there's usually nothing you're trying to refine because you don't have the thing. And there's actually a tricky spot that comes um, after you have a thing where most companies turn to optimizing, which makes tons of sense. Usually things can be improved substantially from their initial version that starts to get some traction, uh, but then Getting creativity after that, especially when you're a medium-sized company, you have a thing that's working, kind of the stage we're in, um, then I think it can be really tricky. So in terms of things you put in place, um, I don't have any hardcore examples. I think it's, it's, it's hiring, hiring people who are creative and allowing them to be creative. I think one of the one things we've done that I will doing very less, if at all now, is um, some set quantifiable goals that you don't know how to hit, I think is actually um, counter-creativity and, act and counterproductive. Because um, you, if, when you don't, like having a bigger goal, in some ways you think, well, if we have to hit that big goal, we're going to come up with really great ideas. I think it actually shuts the minds down of teams where like, we have to hit that number, so we're going to only do things that we can really defend and argue are going to make that happen. And you can do that with small incremental things, but to make a big leap, you have to do the thing that is like, that's probably not gonna show results early on. So I think taking away that pressure, like you hire the right people and they're naturally creative and they wanna do cool things. And so it's a lot of it's like taking away the pressure to say like you have to, you know, deliver these results by a certain time period. And um, while still, being super informed about the metrics, saying like, oh, that's going down and that's going up. I wonder if we can figure that out. Okay, so that's cool. So actually removing constraints and being mindful about the goals you set. That was a faster way to say it. Great. All right, so could you describe the journey Medium took towards its current model of monetization? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I could talk about that all day. But um, So I talked about the layoff part. But so what we were doing before that was um, we we're building this content platform, and I kind of had in my mind from the beginning actually listed premium content, like people would buy, and like in the very first document, it's like, here's how I want to make money. But the thing I really expected was what happened with Twitter is and, and YouTube, and basically the things that we were modeling Medium after was you build a content platform and network, and you get network effects, and you get a critical mass, and you're going to have commercial usages, usage of that. 
And so you charge the companies that are using it. And what has been the most profitable way to charge companies that are using it is, is for distribution. Um, and there's companies like BuzzFeed who at the time were pioneering charging companies for creation of content and, and marketing. And so we had companies and big companies using Medium from pretty early on to publish because content marketing was in vogue at the time. And we're like, oh, well, we can charge them for tools and services and distribution as our network grows. And um, so it wasn't pure advertising. We never had like programmatic ads or anything because we wanted to have this clean user experience and, and high levels of user privacy protection. Uh, but we were doing this content marketing thing, and then that's the thing. It was like, well, if that works really well, what's the feedback mechanism for that? It's going to fuel more, um, more tools, more enterprise sales. It's not going to actually fuel great content that's not marketing. And so maybe it pays for the platform, but it doesn't actually some. It doesn't actually have, like make the next. Roxanne Gay, who comes out of nowhere, get paid for doing great work and building an audience, unless she's writing about GE. So that's like, so thinking about the system, the feedback is like that's unsatisfying. I think you could build a business on that, but that's not what we want to do. It's like, well, what are the options? The money has to come from somewhere. It's either coming from the people creating, the publishers, the, the WordPress business, which is a great business. Um, it's kind of what our business was a blogger before we got bought. We actually charged subscriptions for Blogger Pro. Um, so I was familiar with that. And then, or it comes from advertisers or it comes from the consumers. And the only thing that would create the right feedback loop, I thought, was if it comes from the consumers. So that was sort of the logic. And then there's all the questions. Is that possible? Can it be done? And, and if you look across other media, um, before everybody was putting up paywalls, there was this... Um, Two things seem to be true. One is that in every other form, people had switched from free to paid, at least a large part of the market. And in, in, um, they had gotten a much better product for that, um, talking about music and television. Um, and, and even um, there was a time when people say no one will ever pay for video games. Again, they're all free on the internet. And all those have very large consumer-driven businesses. Um, and the free part still exists as well. It's like, this is going to happen uh, for editorial content as well on the web is because if you do the math, you know you can't pay for, for great stuff with, with advertising as it's moving to programmatic. You can't compete with Facebook and Google. So if you believe the supply of, of great stuff is going to go down that's free, and you believe people have added these experiences, then it seemed very possible. So that's why we decided to do it. Um, and then we started doing it and it took a while to do. Did it hurt a little bit to see all those publishers that your team had recruited to come onto Medium, then all of a sudden leave Medium and then sort of uh, talk oh yeah. shit about and you then, guys? Yeah, yeah, that, that was bad too. That was, <laughs> um, yeah. We, we had a bunch of publishers leave. We did talk, I and mean, we talked with the biggest publishers. I called Bill Simmons, who had launched The Ringer on Medium, um, and said, we're going to switch to subscription because we think that will do better like, and support better quality content, and we would be happy to work with you on that. He had such a thriving advertising business, and it was really branded advertising. He wasn't doing any programmatic, I and mean, you couldn't do programmatic on Medium. Um, that and making uh, you know advertising do as well on his podcast, so um, didn't make sense for him, and so it was it it hurt, but it was an amicable like parting ways. Others um, got more upset about it, and we probably could have handled those communications better, frankly. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, who haven't you met that you want to have a beer with? That's a great question. Who asked that? That was good. <clears throat> Anonymous did. Cool. What the hell? Put your name on that. That's a good, <laughs> good fucking question. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a hard. I knew question. it was a good one. Yeah, it's a yeah. good. Who would you, tell me your answer? I'm uh, to think man, I mean, it's such a wide variety of people. I'm gonna assume they have to be alive. Yeah, alive. <laughs> yeah, we're. This is it right here. Um. Uh, come on. Um. Trying. Try and think of someone I haven't. I'm gonna have to meet with Bradley Cooper so he can learn how to. 
It's got to go method. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to think of that answer in like three more questions. So well, I'm going to okay, skip we'll come back to it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I have to read it. Um, well, you guys are keeping me busy. What are your thoughts on the future of community? That's a good one, too. Do you agree with Mark Zuckerberg when he says communities are moving more towards private small groups? <clears throat> Great question. Manji? I don't think community has ever moved away from private small groups. Like, in the general sense of community. I don't think you can have a large public community, really. I mean, New York, there's, there's degrees and there's concentric circles of communities, but New York is a community and tighter communities are small and private. I, like having a community at a, around a dinner table has you know, always been the, the tightest communities. And so I think this a little bit, I think, is obvious that, there, that the idea that there's this global community that is just talking freely and, and it feels like a community on, on the internet was sort of a fallacy. It was a nice idea. Um, but it wasn't community. It was maybe. Do you think Twitter's a community? No, I don't think Twitter's a community. Never building Twitter did we call it a community or um, try to create a community. And because communities are inherently limited, and it was like Twitter, there's a thousand, 10,000 communities on Twitter who communicate and use Twitter. Um, and so I don't think it has to be private. There's privacy and there's pseudo privacy, but there's just the sense that. If, if you're stepping onto a stage for the world to see, you're not talking to a community. And so whether or not it's private, I think it can be semi-permeable. And there's lots of, there's, I think the best parts of Twitter are, are the, there's a lot of private DM groups actually on Twitter that are basically the same thing. But there's, and then there's technical communities and there's um, intellectual communities and journalist communities. And, and often there are people who know each other in real life or partially in real life. And I think that's how communities always worked. And I don't think that's terribly different. I just think what he's talking about, um, I mean, isn't that a huge part of Facebook already? Is that well, the do you, do you think they got it wrong when they, they started with college communities and then decided that their new version of community would be kind of like everyone? And now they're pulling back from that. Well, I, I, it's hard to say face, what Facebook got wrong. I think the idea that is wrong that a lot of people had that was sort of utopian is that by putting everybody, by connecting everybody in one degree and letting that we would all get along better. Um, that, uh, I think, I think a lot of us got that wrong. Um, but I don't think it, I think it's much more nuanced that, oh, it's not that, it's private small groups. It's, it's everything in between. And it's like, you're in a subway car, that's your community for, for 10 minutes. And if something crazy happens, it becomes a tight knit community. It's community is complex and it's very nuanced. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg was once uh, quoted as saying that like Twitter was something like a clown car that got driven into a gold mine. Do you take? Do you have that? What's that German word where you feel like uh, enjoyment out of other people's suffering? Schadenfreude. Yeah. Are you feeling that? Or like, what do you think about that whole this whole situation here? Which, which situation? Yeah, you can answer whatever way you want. <laughs> I don't know. Those, those aren't wait waters I'm going to wade too, too okay. deep right, into. Okay, all right, great, great. We're talking about entrepreneurialism. So, uh, oh, shit, well. <laughs> You'd think this would be the person who put anonymous on them. <laughs> Thank you, Rush. Um, no. <laughs> Next question. Okay, great. Uh, our <laughs> Yeah, let's just go to the next one. Are engineers, so people with computer science backgrounds, the right people to be CEOs of startups as they grow, or should business people be the CEO? Sucker's choice. Um, they have to I be disagree. There's, there's a, go ahead. It's, it's yeah. both. It's yeah. Engineers who become CEOs are de facto business people. Um, and I think many, if not most, the, the best tech CEOs I'm not a, I'm not a computer science background, by the way. I did write code, but I was, I was, uh, um, I'm, I'm now a business person who has enough technical understanding um, to run a tech company, and I think someone with with deeper um, computer science background 
um, is it's that's helpful to have. But you have to become a business person too, and there are business people who can learn the other way. It's not an either or. I think a huge problem is if if uh, someone who doesn't deeply understand what you're doing, whether it's technical or not, tries to run the company if it's a startup. Yeah, also I would imagine that today, someone with a sales background and only a sales background is generally gonna be disadvantaged running a company. Because they just like thrive in hierarchy where like you don't go to your skip level manager with an idea. Whereas if you live in a more engineering focused culture, you're used to people coming from anywhere in the organization to going back to that idea of like creativity versus optimization. Sales is good at optimization, engineering is better at creativity. Broadly speaking. Most, yeah, I don't want to, yes. <laughs> no, fuck it, I'll say it, <laughs> so. Okay, uh, all, all your products have been around giving people a voice to express their thoughts. What has shaped you in life to be so determined around this mission? I, I kind of said it earlier, but that was to me the exciting thing about the internet. And maybe if I were to form more of a narrative around it, it would be growing up in the farm, not having anyone to talk to. But um, is that what this is all about? Um, no, because I really don't like talking to people on the internet either. <laughs> but I like reading things. Um, and um, there's this vast uh, amount of things to read. So um, I would just wanted those things to be better. But um that's i mean now it's 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 also i think i think about it much more broadly is that the the ideas we share and stories we tell and that we believe and we consume shape how we think about everything and it shapes how we behave how we look at others who we vote for um and so where do people get those they get them increasingly from the internet um, so the systems that reward and influence what gets created and what gets distributed and what gets put in front of people they consume, there is very little in the world and society that that doesn't affect. Uh, so when I actually, when I had, um, stepped away from the day to day of Twitter, I was thinking about what I do next. Um, I, I've been interested in, in climate and sustainability for a long time. It's a big area we invest in at Obvious. I was like, maybe I should do something totally not media or internet related and just go work on that problem and studied a fair amount about it. Didn't have any breakthrough ideas. Um, and I came back to, well, one of the biggest problems that contributes to that is just like the, the media manipulation that has happened over the 30 decades prior, or th three decades prior, where this was a known problem in the scientific community, and then it was it was not generally accepted in society because of media, um, or lack of the right media, or the wrong media, or media manipulation. It was like, well, that really affects everything, um, as well as education also affects everything, obviously, and families and schools, and these things affect everything, but media affects everything. So that's why I say it's still worth working on. What's your, so to piggyback off of that, what's your view of, of the press? Because you've built these platforms where people can sort of share information outside of the press being the gatekeeper, and then you've also funded uh, successful journalism inside of Medium. So are you, what's, what's your feeling yeah, on that? Um, my, well, my relationship with the press has changed, and um, Medium's the first company out of many that's been enabling media that is actually employees journalists like you said we've done that for a few years and we've grown that team a lot over the last year um and the reason for that and we also work with with other commercial um, publishers and nonprofits as well that have professional journalists and that sits alongside the the user generated content and i think it's all part of the picture and it's it's um and it's i think it's fairly obvious, but that there are things that each do do well. And um, meaning, like, you, ca you can't ever hear, I really enjoy reading first-person accounts, whether it's an entrepreneur saying, this is how I built my company, or this is what I fucked up, or here's my personal story of, um, and we get those every day in volume on Medium, and, and the fact that anyone in the world can come and offer that and it may change the way you view the world or may give you a good idea. That That's core to our ethos and what I think is so great about the web still. I, and 
Um, on Medium now, also, people can do that. And actually, if they want to, get paid for that, potentially, if people read it, which I also think is cool. And um, those people are unlikely to do the type of reporting and professional journalism that you do or that a lot of other people do. That is, like, we all read every day. And it's not personal accounts. And it's like, I'm going to go figure out what the story is. Or I have a hunch about the, like this thing you were telling me earlier, which I won't reveal your big story you, you have coming up. You. But, but it's like, that's not going to be like, someone has to get paid. It has to be their job. And they have to have training to go do that. So it would be silly to say like only one of those is superior to the other. I think, I'm, I remember in the early days of blogging, there's a lot of discussions. Is blogging journalism? And is it destroying journalism? And is it what is it doing? And then the same conversation about social media. And it's just all like, no, dude. It's just like lots of voices, lots of ideas. We got to figure out which ones are worth paying attention to. There is bad journalism, too. I think also journalism is held up as this sacred thing that um, it like should be protected and saved. I think it should be made better. I think there's phenomenal journalism. I think there's a lot of shitty journalism. And um, and some of that comes because of poor business models. Some of that comes before because of poor journalists. And so that's true. So that's what I think of journalism. Okay, I'm glad I asked you that one. Okay, uh, what career industry uh, would you be in if you weren't in social media? Am I in social media? I don't know. Um, if I wasn't in sort of the general area of tech and media. I think um, you can't walk out of the whole social media. You do. You have a media company that is social. That's the definition. We just, of it. yeah, we don't really think about it as that social. We we consider medium a tech and media company. Um, it's a tech. It's 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 both. I mean, and in but as is Netflix, and so we we look at it like that. We're maybe a little bit more tech and a little bit less media. Um, but but we're definitely both in ways that my previous companies weren't, even though they were, I mean, Twitter is in the area of media, but it's not a media company. I think some people debate that. Um, sells advertising. What was the question? <laughs> you know, I don't know. What I usually say, if, if I weren't doing my current job or weren't starting companies, is I would be a writer. Um, I really, that's probably the answer. I, and I want to write books. I want to write like big, fat, meaty things and I can just like lock myself in my room for a few days and like write a chapter of a book. It sounds a lot better than it actually is. <laughs> just wait until you go days without seeing the sun and I've eaten Hot Pockets for two weeks straight. Sounds great. <laughs> Reminds me of coding. <laughs> There's, there are similarities. You get in the zone and then you go. Uh, do you think there could ever be a live version of Medium, a talk series like TED, or an interview show? Live events are big, I hear. <laughs> I'd, I've actually talked with John about doing something together here, which I'd love to do. Um, and generally, what we see is our mission at Medium is helping people understand the world and, and discover great ideas. And we are not attached to the written word as being the only way to do that. So in the fullness of time, I love the idea of different forms, um, different digital forms, audio, video, other things we may play with, as well as, as, well as events. Um, we might try something soon. Break some news. That's all, that's all I got. Hot task. Okay, what's one big thing that went wrong about social media in the last decade, and what's one big thing that needs to change in the next one? One big thing. Hard to narrow that down. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump. I got Donald Trump from the audience that... Um, um, that was that was a big one, um, but I don't. I th actually think I don't want to be like. I think we got all the things. Um, not all the things. Be careful with my words here. Um, I think we have a, a fine V one. I don't know how it needs to change. Frankly, I don't like on medium. We. Again, I don't consider it social media exactly. I assume this person is talking more about the Twitter and Facebook type things. Um, but 
I like the direction that people have been talking about about less um, direct feedback, um, the likes and stuff. I wouldn't say that's the big thing, but I think how it might change is we've humans have this deep desire for connection, and um, they also are wired to compete on status. And we combine those two things um, on the internet and um, in social media specifically. And I think they need to be unbound in a sense. And so um, that's the direction I would think about is how do you, how do you maintain connection and the exchange of ideas and build community um, and uh, like not make it a status competition? Uh, I think that's the big thing. I think the, the fallacy is when people say, well, we should have designed it better or done something differently to get where, you know, in the first place, is that it probably wouldn't have worked. And so, because you, you have to go through those, it was a very, in, in, the, in the world of ideas and things that worked, Facebook and Twitter weren't the only things. They weren't the only things that could have become the big thing. They worked because they had the right set of feedback loops and, and lots of luck and being in the right place at the right time. But they also have had mechanisms that work. And, and I think to say, well, we shouldn't have had those is naive because something else would have had those and we would have had the different as a similar situation. But I do think it needs to change and I think they are evolving. So you were the CEO of Twitter when Twitter built the retweet button. So it was. And and okay, do you think Are you the one that wrote that story with Chris Weatherall? I did. Hmm. I mean I try I emailed you, but you emailed me back after it was live, so that didn't work. Um <laughs> But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, it, do you think the retweet button is a healthy thing for Twitter? I mean, it's allowed, it's caused people to not stop and think before they share things, which causes sensationalism and outrage and fake news to spread. And then it allows people to um, get fa false facts about people they don't like out there faster than people can respond. Um, I would defend the retweet. I think a lot of the... Uh, the argument against the retweet is very speculative. Uh, I think even that statement that it allows people to get false facts out there faster, um, do like that's technically because you can hit retweet faster than you can type something, maybe true, but does that have a systemic effect on facts spreading faster? I don't know that that's maybe someone studied that. I'm I'm not sure. I think the, the, I'll tell you the more the origin behind retweet and why we designed the way we did. And lots of people know that retweet was a, like many Twitter features, started by the community and, um, and third party clients. I call it a community there. Um, uh, and Truth comes <laughs> out. Um, where people would quote someone else's tweet and put RT and put the, the name. And it was just messy and it didn't look good. And so there's a lot of debate about do we, Let's, let's systematize that. But um, the internal debate was whether you, you, you basically distribute the tweet as a whole unit or you're quoting it and, and saying, like, Alex is like quoting this other person like you would in an article or a blog. And I argue very strongly for the, the implementation that we have, which is it's, no, it's the original avatar and the person, and you go, because I want the integrity of it. The other thing that sucked is people would RT, and then they would edit, or they would, like, for space. And I was like, no, the integrity of the initial unit needs to spread through the network. And we saw ourselves as an information network, not a social network. And that was a very important distinction. May have been wrong. It can be debated. But this was the, the principle at the time was um, the people who hated the other person showing up. And was like, I didn't follow that person, and they're in my timeline. and. And people called it, they're strangers in my timeline. It makes me very uncomfortable. Strangers in the house. Strangers in the house. I'm like used to going to Twitter and seeing my friends, and I'm seeing these strangers. I, I hate this. And my argument was, you're thinking about it wrong. It's not for your friends. Like It's for getting information that is valuable to you and you want to see. And some of that's from your friends, but that's a small subset of information you care about. If there's a fire down in the street, 
And um, for some reason, we always talked about there being a fire in Whole Foods, I think because Whole Foods was a couple blocks from Twitter, and there was a fire there one day. And we're like, we should know this via Twitter. <laughs> so that still occurs to me. But it was like, that needs to come. It doesn't have to come from a friend. It comes because it's relevant to you. So how do we build the most efficient and relevant information distribution system we can? Not a social network. So the retweet seemed like a really good way to do that, the way it was designed. And so there's all these benefits that come from that because you get relevant information that doesn't have to be from your friends. And there's bad things coming from that just because everything is, has a shadow side. OK, I won't push you too hard. We can talk about this offline. Story's already live. OK, what are one or two specific things that you do every day as a founder? Ben, I think that it should be that that you believe few other founders, founders do? It's hard to answer the few other founders do um, part. Uh, do every day. Um, almost every day I make my kids breakfast. That's pretty good, that's rare. Okay, um, so that's one. My wife's here too, she's probably. Um, what else do I do, dear? I try to get eight hours of sleep. That's impressive. I don't always succeed. I'm, I'm, but I got this aura ring, which is pretty cool. That's the sleep tracker, right? I was going to ask tracker. about it. Yeah. So I, I average like probably seven twenty, which, but I get a fair amount of deep sleep and uh, REM in that, so it feels pretty good. So those are my two things. Do you have like an overarching? life philosophy about how sleep to live. is important yeah um and uh yeah i think uh, i'll answer i'll give another answer to the first question or the second question about first starting out it's just like take care of yourself it's just like the mentality i think this is less common now but um, 15, 20 years ago in the Valley, it was, it was like, there was this very macho, like if you're doing a startup, you're sleeping under your desk and you're eating hot pockets that you microwaved and never, you know, getting sunlight. And it's, it's, um, I think a good thing has happened in the last, um, some time has been a real consciousness about health among engineers and hackers and all that. But at the time I was like, just treated myself like, Shit, and I, from throughout my 20s, I would stay up all night on average once a week, and sometimes be twice a week. And, and I was um, just not in good health, and it was just complete, like, oh, the body is just a vessel for carrying the brain around, sort of. And, you know, and so I'd work constantly and then make tons of mistakes, like you do. And it was all driven by anxiety and adrenaline. And that was just not smart in retrospect. So. Do you cringe a little bit when you see those VC tweets out there that's saying, like, if you're not doing 7, 7, 10, you're falling behind? I, I, yes and no. Because I do, I think it can be taken too far. Like, I don't, um, I don't subscribe to, like, no, you should only work 9 to 5. And, like, if you're trying to build something that's fucking hard and you got to work a lot. Um, I do believe that. I also think you have to take care of yourself. And I think it's it's the stuff, in, and you have to be very judi judicious about, like, for me, it's like, I don't have hobbies. I've never really had a hobby. It's it's It used to be all work, and now it's it's work and family, and um, and and then health. And, it, and so you, you carve out those things, and you say, okay, I'm not a surfer. Um, and so, you know that's a choice. It's not the only correct choice, but I think, I think the it's also not like oh just like take it easy. That's fine. It's just it's a choice. Like I do think working a lot if you're trying to build something is usually required, um, and taking care of yourself makes those hours, you know, better. Great. Oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Do we can we do, can we take a couple from the audience? Or we we want to wrap up. The beer. Oh, the beer. Who are you gonna oh, have? A, oh, we have a beer, beer with. Beer question. Thank you, whoever shouted that out. I almost let that go. Appreciate it. I forgot. I wasn't Can I ask kidding. you if you've like? All right, I'm gonna just run through some. You people. would name people and see if I've. Been. <laughs> yeah. Have you? Have you? 
Have you hung out with Zuckerberg before? I have. I have. A few times. How was that? <laughs> you know, um, this is fine. Cool. Um, How yeah. about uh, next? Bezos? Yeah, I had, a, I had a beer with Bezos. He's great. Yeah? Yeah. Who else? But, uh, yeah, Obama. Obama? I have. I have. A few occasions. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, Obama's question, fantastic. Um, yeah? Uh, Jobs. In the not alive category, it definitely would would be Steve Jobs. I did never meet Steve, Steve Jobs. Um, I uh, ran into him in an elevator once, but I did not meet him. Generally, those interactions ended well for Apple employees. Well, yeah, Elon Musk. Uh, hung out with Elon Musk. <laughs> and uh, Trump. Wait, Beyonce. Beyonce. You nailed it. There you go. Beyonce. Okay. Well, I have not hung out with Beyonce. And Trump. Donald Trump. Yeah, I didn't put him on the list. Um, no, haven't met him. What about uh, Bloomberg? I would, uh, I've never met Mike. I'd be happy to meet Mike. Okay, so your answer is Beyonce? Yeah, my answer, my official answer is Beyonce. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Ev. Maybe she'll watch the video. Maybe she'll watch the video and give me a call. Oh, that's right. So yeah. thanks for asking yeah. the okay, question. everyone. Thanks so much for coming. I can wrap up, right? Thanks so much for coming, everyone. This was great. A round of applause for Ev.